Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, July 6th, 2020. On the show today, news. And in our main segment, Jim talks about Walt Disney Imagineering's plans to change Splash Mountain into a Princess in the Frog ride. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that sports teams could score way more points if they just work together. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well. And, and speaking of sports teams, did you see the size of the mattresses that they were hauling into the Grand Flow just yesterday? Oh, they're huge. Uh, we, we're going to talk about the Grand Flow in a minute because there's some other stuff going okay. on there. But yeah, they're mm-hmm. massive, massive uh, hotel mattresses. Like an aircraft carrier could land a jet on these things. It's like, <laughs> it is part of the collective bargaining agreement. So that's uh, that's something that we knew that they were going to need. It's going to be interesting in three or four months to see what is that backstore cast member only store? Cast <laughs> Connection. Like. Cast Connection. There you go. If you, want a, uh, if you want a double California King on sale cheap, only used once, yeah, that'll be where it's at. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Jim, 11 consecutive weeks with a record number of Bandcamp subscribers. Thank you all so much. We just put up uh, the second half of our Polynesian Resort Walkaround with Laurel, and we've got a new Wilderness Lodge Walkaround coming up this week. Also, Jim, I hear you've got Josh Gad on this week's episode of Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor. Is that true? No one is more surprised than I. That was more Drew's doing than mine, but... Josh is a great guy, and actually, I should tell you, he's a huge fan of this show, and he and his daughter, Ava, listen all the time. So, hi, Ava. Yay. Hey, Ava. How's it going? <laughs> That's going to be fantastic. I can't wait to hear that with uh, with Josh. Also, Jim, let's do a quick thanks to new subscribers, Kevin T, Malapagi88, and Brian K, and longtime subscribers, Dave B, Timothy H, and Andrea G. Jim? These are the folks who design the spells used in the Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom game, and they're based on actual magic. Apparently, one of the early spells from Emperor's New Groove was too close to the real thing, and it turned Kevin and Andrea into alpacas. But, good news, they were able to reverse the spell, and everyone got really nice sweaters at the company holiday party, so it all worked out in the end. True story. <laughs> it's a little early in the day for adult beverages, isn't it, Len? <laughs> Is it, Jim? Is it? Is it? You still have that rule uh, three months into this thing, four months into this thing? All right. <laughs> look at look at you being consistent. Uh, there you go. Jim, I was at the Poly Monday and Tuesday, and I saw the monorails running, which I, I think I actually did a fist pump at breakfast at Conan Cafe when I saw the monorails running. No one else was ex- as excited as I was at 7.30 in the morning, but... Maybe I'm just enthusiastic. The interesting thing, they were doing only the express loop. So they weren't doing the resort loop, only the express loop between TTC and Magic Kingdom. And they were running the monorail both directions, not at the same time, obviously. But they would do one loop clockwise and then one loop counterclockwise, I guess, just to make sure things worked both ways. Okay. <laughs> that must have been a little interesting to watch from the ground to go, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> exactly. Also, uh, news uh, from WDW Magic that the Mm -hmm. Skylander will be running once the studios opens on July 15th. And our own, uh, my sister Christina was able to capture video of Skylanders in motion this week too. So that was, uh, that's also good to see. So uh, things will be back. I heard on the monorail, the way that they're going to enforce guest distancing is by Mm -hmm. requiring everyone to take a seat and leaving no room for standing. So if you remember how the monorails are situated, there's about six feet of standing space between the seats on either side 
So you'd be required to sit down. So that's going to cut the capacity, I'd say, by about 60%. But still, um, that's how they're going to get it to run. So that's good. Going to be some interesting days at the TTC. It will. Also, um, speaking of uh, my, my trip at the Poly, we walked over to the Grand Floridian Tuesday night for, or Monday night, sorry, for dinner. And mm-hmm. on one of the Camp exclusive episodes, Laurel and I were walking around trying to figure out why Disney had planted these little construction flags all along the sides of the walkways on the Grand Floridian. And this week it became apparent what it was for. Jim, have you seen the pictures of the large chain link fence that now divides <laughs> half of the Magic Kingdom? Yeah, just a, a touch disconcerting. As far as correctional facilities, you know, the Grand Flow. As, yeah, you know? as far as correctional yeah. facilities go, it's rather attractive. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but. folks. So for those of you who haven't seen the pictures, imagine an eight-foot-tall chain link fence wrapped in blue tarp plastic extending from essentially Narcusis all the way to the Grand Floridian Villas pool and then cutting down to the beach, meaning you can't walk, basically surrounding the entire set of buildings. That's what it looks like now. If you're, uh, it's, it, and it runs right past the back of the main building in the Grand Floridian. And the, you, to say that you can't miss it, is an understatement. It's it's essentially the Berlin Wall of the Grand Floridian. We have to come up with a catchy name for it, Jim. And I, by the way, I, uh, I I joked on the Bandcamp exclusive show that I need you in front of a podium in front of that fence, saying, "Mr. Chapek, tear down this wall." <laughs> uh, if we could dress you up in a suit, I could get that podium, and we could do the video for like thirty seconds before security catches on to what's what's happening. I think it'd be okay. hysterical. Okay, we're going to have to get that that Reagan buttered toast hair going, but we'll we'll figure it out. (laughs) Is really an eight-foot-tall fence going to be all that effective from keeping NBA players from view? I think it it will. It's it's tall enough. There aren't many players over seven-foot-six in the NBA. The, The thing that I found interesting, though, was the blue tarp isn't completely opaque. You can see through it. So you'll you'll be able to see who is on the other side. Uh, of it, but it, but it's it's cordoned off, literally half the half of the Grand Floridian, and I can't imagine the people at the Grand Floridian signed up for that. Like, what kind of? I wonder what kind of script Disney has for people who are coming to the Grand Floridian in the next couple of weeks once the parks open, and who see this fence and go, I don't remember this in the brochures. <laughs> Well, it's blue. Isn't isn't that one of those colors that they use to, you know, in special effects to replace chroma key it out? Yeah. So it's like, what what fence? I don't see what a you're fence. talking. What about. fence? What? I don't see a fence there. It's it's so you can it's it's make, makes it easier for you guys to photoshop things in in your uh, in your vacation images. That's what I'm going with. There you go. And Jim, you had mentioned uh, something else too about uh, about the NBA. There's some some word came out this week, some stories around how much the NBA is actually paying to Disney to host oh. You got to remember, we're talking about 22 teams plus their support staff, which are going to be working out of three different resorts. And, you know, you got to get seven different practice courts for all of these teams to rotate through and they're playing games in three different arenas. But between providing meals for these folks and daily coronavirus testing, it looks like we're talking about $150 million that the NBA is you know, going to be handing over to Disney. But again, that that's also for medical support, for security, transportation. And when you factor in the support staff and the family members that are coming down, you're talking about 1,500 people. Yeah, it's a big operation. But the, uh, yeah. the it shows you how much revenue there is in sports that they can drop $150 million 
uh, and do that. Mm -hmm. The TV rights alone are probably worth more than that just for the games. So at this point, because the normal 88 regular season games and the the floor rounds of playoffs are off the table, NBA at this point Mm -hmm. has projected it's over a billion dollars that they're losing this year. So, you know, the fact that, you know, they're willing to put this money up to make this happen just so there's some sort of a season says a lot. And they don't want to. They don't want to risk more long, uh, damage to the long term value of the brand. So a partial season here is better than none. Absolutely makes complete sense. All right, Jim. In other news, I was at Universal uh, Studios over the weekend testing out touring plans and went really, really well. But I caught the new Born Stuntacular show at Universal Studios Florida. Jim, have you seen video of this online? It's pretty impressive. It's it? an amazing stunt show. I think it's the best stunt show in Orlando right now. And the couple of things make it. Great. One is it's indoors. So uh, mm-hmm. unlike Indiana Jones, where you're basically sitting outside without air conditioning in July, this one's indoors with with AC, and that's fantastic. But there are two interesting things about Bourne that make it great. One, they're using this huge 200-foot-long digital display screen to give you digital images of different locations where Jason Bourne is supposed to be at any given point in the show around the world. So for example, if he's in Morocco, the digital display in the background is is all Morocco. And if he's in Berlin, it's a, it's a cityscape and so on. And the other thing that is neat about it is the stage itself rotates. And when it rotates, it can bring in different huge props. So for example, in one scene, uh, there's a two-story tower that comes in and Jason Borg goes into the tower and climbs up and there's a fight that happens, you know, inside the tower. The, uh, the amazing part of the show is that as the, the studio audience, you're supposed to be getting a camera eye view mm-hmm. of this stunt. So you're, you're essentially like you're filming uh, it. And there are a couple of instances in the show where the set that's displayed on, on stage rotates and uh, either goes up or down, mimicking, you know, whether uh, uh, you've seen camera angles in movies that sort of like spin around the action and then go up or down. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be mimicking that. But the interesting thing about the show is when the prop is doing the spinning, the background is also spinning too. So imagine a, you know, a 200 foot long display that simulates spinning while the prop is spinning. And it feels like, I mean, it's really, it really feels like you're, you're spinning as well. I, the first time it happened, I actually put my hands down on the seat rests to instinctively to hold on, which was kind of great. But amazing, amazing effects in the show. It's fast paced. The story, does the story really make sense in the overall scheme of things? Eh, you know, I don't know. But I'm, I'm there for the stunts and I'm there for the effects. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. Like I said, best, best stunt show in Orlando, without a doubt. Wow, that's high praise. I'll have to definitely check that out next time down in Orlando. Yeah, uh, listeners, uh, definitely look for videos for it uh, online. Actually, I take that back. I don't think you can film on it, so there may not be videos online of it. But if you can catch snippets of it somewhere, it's uh, it's really, really good. All right, Jim, speaking of rides, um, you have news about a uh, an autism legal case that was finally decided between Disney and uh, the mother of an autistic son who had wanted yeah. 10 FastPass line access passes for her son when they visited. What, uh, what happened with that? I'm very sympathetic for Mrs. Dorman, the, the, the woman who filed this. She has an autistic son who really doesn't have a concept of time and mm-hmm. loves to go to the parks. And when told to wait in line, melts down. And so the reason she filed this lawsuit on behalf of all sorts of, of parents whose children have autism was mm-hmm. to the notion of, can we do something 
to accommodate this particular situation. And she acknowledged earlier this year that it seemed quite unlikely that she was going to win this lawsuit. But, you know, she felt, still felt she was fighting the good fight. But I think you're the one who, who came across the, the, you know, the problem was that what Disney brought up about people who made use of the guest assistance passes, that it, it kind of looks like they abuse it, doesn't it? Right. So Disney's, Disney's argument was based on the experience of the guest assistance card. If they implemented a system where anyone with a disability got 10 front-of-the-line access cards, it would be abused far more uh, than what they'd seen. And Disney actually gave us some really interesting statistics here. One thing they said was that guests who who had the old guest assistance card rode popular attractions like Toy Story Mania in Hollywood Studios 10 times more than guests without the card. And that fits in with anecdotal evidence we'd heard from cast members who worked that exact ride who said that on any given day, 25% of the ride's capacity was allocated, was basically taken up by, by people with the guest assistance card. And we had commented at the mm-hmm. time that there's no way that 25% of the U.S. population has a disability that requires that kind of accommodation. Like, it's just no way, right? But the other interesting thing Disney said was if they g- had to give out 10 FastPass line access passes to each guest who, who requested them, it would significantly increase the weights in the standby lines at popular attractions. And they gave the example of Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. Uh, and the reason why I think this is significant, Jim, is Disney's ne- never mm-hmm. really said what the average weight is at Seven mm-hmm. Dwarfs. But they said in the court filing, the average is 69 minutes. And if they implemented this 10 fast pass system, that lo- that weight would go from 69 minutes to 108 minutes. So plus 39 for standby guests. And the judge was apparently convinced by this. She said mm-hmm. that the system would be ripe for abuse. It would significantly impact the wait times for non-disabled guests. It would also fundamentally change Disney's business model, right? You can't, uh, you can't ask uh, everyone else in the park to, uh, to increase their wait time by more than 50%. And it's far beyond the reasonable accommodation requirement of the ADA. So the, the thing that I had a question about, and I'm not sure what this is, the judge said this specific scheme that the, uh, the plaintiffs wanted wasn't viable, but that doesn't mean that other systems aren't viable. Right, because I think the uh, the lawyer true, who had filed true. who had helped file this case has like what sixty more cases. Yeah, I mean, especially now on the heels of COVID, where you know they're debating this based on a normal day in the park, and we are so far from normal at this point. Yeah, <laughs> that word lacks meaning. Yeah, and it, in fact, just kind of ironic that at this moment, looking for accommodations for you know autistic kids, when you think about how Give Kids the World had to literally shut down its village because the parks can't accommodate anything. At this point, especially bringing in children who's immunocompromised. Yeah, that'd be difficult. (sighs) Yeah, it's a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. Jim, speaking of uh, in-park experiences, uh, our friends at WDW Magic Mm -hmm. note that Garden Grill is going to offer a modified character meal when the park opens. And that joins Topolino as the only Mm -hmm. two character meals in the park. They haven't said what what the modified character experience is going to be. My guess is it's going to be the characters walking around at a distance you know, stopping in front of each table for uh, socially distant selfies. <laughs> well, now remember, this is Garden Grill. Does it still rotate? Or it still you know, rotates? Yeah, I mean, it did as of last year okay. when I was there. Yeah. Okay, so you know, in theory, you could put the characters on ladders outside the restaurant. That's true. We just, had, you know, just they, having to sit there. They, yeah. 
Yeah, just just wave to the kids from a distance. Uh, realistically, though, I mean, if you've seen the footage of of the characters in Topolino, it's like they're speed walking. It's like, hey, who are you? Nice to see you. I gotta go. <laughs> I would love to get a Fitbit on, on oh, yeah. the characters that are working the garden grill because the combination of the restaurant spinning and constantly moving, and it's like speed walk yeah, they're champions. Getting, they're getting, you know, they're they're getting the all ones. of their daily activity at once. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Exactly. All right, Jim. Uh, also, uh, we're speaking about dining. When I was over at the Grand Floridian for dinner, we wanted to have a drink at Enchanted Rose, the bar upstairs at the Grand Floridian, but it had closed uh, apparently because of the new restrictions in Florida about bars being open. However, you could get drinks with meals at the Grand Floridian Cafe, so you could order a cocktail with dinner if you wanted. And and that brings me to the to the next bit of news, and that's that Oga's Cantina. Uh, has been removed from the list of restaurants reopening in the parks. Is this Jim because it's a bar or because it's so uh, it's a really small space? Like what, what's what's Disney thinking there? Yes and yes, though okay. there have been some discussions about. Well, you know, we serve bar food. If we severely limited the number of people who came in and and place the emphasis more on come in and have us, you know. I, but again, it, it is it's just bar food, right? I mean. Right. If Disney had done what they had originally planned to do with Ogus Cartoon, where it was basically the pre-show for the dinner show, right? it could be open today or, you know, that, because it, it did, in fact, serve food. But, but yeah, especially on the heels of what Governor DeSantis just handed down this past Friday about closing bars, that there's no wiggle room there. Right. So those of you waiting on fuzzy tauntauns, it's going to be a while. Yeah. I think that'll be one of the last things that uh, reopens. I, I I might be surprised. We'll see. Speaking mm-hmm. of uh, speaking of things that are uh, uh, closing uh, or, or or opening, Jim, you have some news about Cirque du Soleil as well. Just this past week, we saw the announcement that Cirque was declaring bankruptcy. I can't tell you the number of people who immediately reached out. What does this mean about Drawn to Life? And it's like, well, right. Drawn to Life and the Vegas shows. Thanks to a friend of the show, CC, uh, and I found out that they've been paying the staff uh, for both the Orlando as well as the, the Vegas companies with the notion of when it's possible to start up these shows, they will do so immediately. And it, in fact, I, I think you probably saw the news earlier this week that the first set of tickets for the rescheduled Drawn to Life became available for purchase for dates in November. They're hopeful that they can get things up and running again, uh, and certainly the folks at Disney Springs would love to see that show up and running, just to, to re-energize the West Side. Yeah, how long is it, how long has the show been dark? They were supposed to open in April, so we were getting our first set of shows, sort of the work in progress stuff going in March. So it's you know it never it never officially opened. So it's been dark a full three months at this point. And if we're talking about November, they probably won't begin calling the cast back and doing rehearsals till, you know, late September or October. So when did the uh, last show close? La Nuba, I want to say that was a year and a half before. So what would that have been? That would have been late 2018? No, I thought it was 2017. Oh, God. So I I thought the last show was like... Right around New Year's of 2017. Okay. So that means 2018, 2019, and most of 20, three years. Wow. Think about how the NBA experience has just been counting on folks showing up for uh, Drawn to Life. Yeah. You know, just 
for the foot traffic and to, hey, what's in there? Let's go check that out. Yeah, I mean, it's a ghost town over there. I would say, well, good. And don't forget, uh, not only the, not only is the NBA experience waiting for Cirque du Soleil to open, but the AMC theaters mm. are closed yeah. as well. So there's nothing. There's no yeah. no real big draws on the west side right now, and that's I think they're they're really hurting there. I did hear though that there's a new glazed donut and coffee shop that's opening in Disney Springs, so that's good. Isn't that just across the street from where Jake's that Indiana Jones themed bar? In fact, I you know, want to talk about being snake bit. I think they have <laughs> right. been only open a day, and then the bar know, thing came when, out, right? Yeah, so it's like enjoy your drink, get out. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. But I'm looking forward to donuts. Donuts and coffee sound good. Diabetic. I wave at those things from a distance. Right, they look right, lovely. Exactly. They I, look you know. great. I, I remember those. That was good. So, Jim, I, I mentioned that I was at uh, I was at the Polynesian uh, earlier this week. I got mm. as soon as I got out of the Polynesian, as soon as I checked out, immediately a uh, new Disney survey landed in my inbox. All and a bunch of our listeners uh, sent in uh, the exact same survey. Our friend Dave Mesky sent in uh, one that he got from the Boardwalk. Jim, no surprise here. Uh, lots of questions about cleanliness during your resort stay and also uh, about how the new processes and procedures impacted your stay at the resort. So, for example, Jim, the uh, one of the first questions that you get is, please rate the level of cleanliness upon first entering your room. And it's excellent, very good, good, just okay or poor. And then they ask for follow-up questions about that. Next question is, uh, please rate the cleanliness of public areas. Same thing with food and beverage experiences as well. So, Jim, no, no surprises here on this, right? No. For me, it's fascinating. Given that Disney already had this rep for you know extreme attention to cleanliness, it's just it's fascinating to watch them double down and just what do you expect now? You know, in right. the middle of COVID nineteen. That's a great point because one of the uh, one of the survey questions, the the second set of cleanliness related survey questions, began with uh, this. Thinking about from the time you arrived on property until you checked out, how would you rate your experience with the health and safety measures that were in place? So excellent, very good, good, just okay mm -hmm. and poor. And then whatever rating you give, they ask you for, for details on that. And then the very next question is, please indicate the extent to which you agree or disagree with each of the following statements about your stay at your hotel. And so it's a, it goes from strongly agree to strongly disagree. Uh, and the questions are, maintaining a safe distance at my hotel was easy in certain areas that were more congested or crowded. The staff was always wearing face coverings. Other guests were wearing face coverings, reassured me. The number of hand washing and hand sanitizing stations was sufficient. And so that was really, really um, enlightening too. So they're, they're definitely surveying people about that. And when I answered this, I said that I felt very good about, about all of those things. And I think uh, Dave answered them uh, the same way mm -hmm. as well. And then we get the, so this is the standard sort of like hundred question survey that we got, but um, that we always get. But there were also other questions in the end about magic band use. Have you seen, have you seen those? No, I've not. So uh, did you use a magic band to get in the room? Did you use my Disney experience to get an early check-in uh, and so on? They also asked a bunch of questions about whether their pre-arrival health information was read and was it useful? So uh, going along again with the strongly agree to strongly disagree, or I didn't, I don't remember. There are questions around whether the pre-arrival health acknowledgement was reassuring, the no before you go communication was informative. And then there's a final question that says, do you feel that the level of new health and safety procedures 
at your hotel are just right, too much, or too little? I would love to see what the answers to that that one were. Especially, it would be fascinating given the news cycle right now where Mm -hmm. we're seeing this spike in COVID. I couldn't help but think people who were on property a week ago being the first through the door experiencing this versus folks who were coming in with this news cycle rattling around their head and, you know, just the effect of, you know, excuse me, could I put on a deep sea diver outfit? (laughs) Just, just asking, you know, you know, I, I, I've said on the show a couple of times and I, and I really believe it's true. Uh, Everywhere Mm -hmm. I went in Walt Disney world over the last couple of weeks, I've seen hundred percent, a hundred percent mass compliance. And the same thing is true at Universal's theme parks. Everyone there is trying to do the right thing. And I say it when I, when I walk outside in celebration, when I go downtown, I don't think we're at 50% mask usage there, even in closed spaces. Like I've seen, mm-hmm. I, was, I was at a business yesterday, I won't mention the business, but mm-hmm. I saw an, an Osceola County Sheriff in the business not wearing a mask. And there's a mask requirement in Osceola County. And I think that's the thing that the rest of Florida is fighting. Like, mm-hmm. like if, we can't get, if we can't get law enforcement to, to follow the law, Right. It, it, it's not sending a good signal. And I think that's that's the, the problem that, that Florida is facing. But once you're on property, everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I maintain and I'm convinced of this, that it's mm-hmm. one of the safest places to be in Florida. All right. So thanks to uh, thanks, Dave, uh, for that. By the way, there was uh, one final question in that survey that Dave wanted me to highlight. And that was Disney was asking whether the things that weren't available. So, for example, uh, limited capacity in the pools or uh, limited capacity in the restaurants, whether that severely impacted your enjoyment of the vacation. So I, uh, I'm dying to see what these results are for these uh, for these questions. Just from when you and Laurel were on property, just how happy you signed it just to be there. You know, I think oh, that, yeah, you it's know, fantastic. It's going to be interesting to watch again. You know, if they continue to survey what week two, week three, because to be honest, we're all happy just to be out of the house. Yeah, that, that, and, I, and I had to, I have to measure my um, my expectations on that. Like when I was doing the restaurant reviews. I had to keep in the back of my mind, mm. this is some of the first restaurant food I've had in three months. So <laughs> it's probably going to taste fantastic no matter what it is. So I had to take that into, into account. But um, yeah, I think the, the people who came back to, to Disney the first two weeks they were open, starting you know, June 22nd, I mean, we're in some sense, we're the true believers, right? We're the people who, who really wanted to go there. But as more and more people come after July 11th when the parks open, we'll get a more of a cross-section of general you know, United States travelers. And the, uh, I, I want to see what, uh, what their opinion is. Uh, for that. But still, I think it's for anyone listening to the show, you're you're also a true believer. It's great to be in the parks. The background music is fantastic. The smells of the resorts are amazing. The food is excellent, you know, and the the, the staff are all uniformly great. So it's still a great time. All right, Jim, speaking of great times, we have a, cu- a couple of listener questions. We uh, actually got a number of uh, listeners who wrote in with their experiences with Disney weddings. And I want to get to that, but I have a quick listener question from Chris, and it's this. I was wondering if what, uh, what you all thought Disney might be doing for annual pass holders. If you think they'll be offering any other incentives given the current circumstances. I'm a platinum pass holder, and I understand that what I agreed to meant that if the parks are at capacity, I can't get in. Uh, but not being able to, to get in because of capacity, uh, and even if I could, the park hopping incentive is gone, not to mention shorter hours. It seems like what we signed up for has been completely changed, and even though it might be unsafe to travel, the clock starts ticking again July 11th. So Jim... We've heard this a lot from a lot of people, right? Disney is trying to to get their arms around this, but again, you know, face it, when you know someone's like Chris and they're a platinum pass holder, they've had an experience of what they get with that level of of pass holder, and it's just sort of like, 
what's efficient make good? And, and at the same time, the resources that are on the table right now compared to what the resources will be in, say, three months or six months, you know, to accommodate these folks uh, will be different. Right. So it's just, I wish we could give a more definitive answer here, but uh, people are going to have to roll with the punches for a while here, especially in the situation where we're seeing another potential COVID spike that you know, there's a number of people right now who are just sort of like, wow, and, and especially on the heels of the, you know, the news that broke just yesterday about what was it, equity, you know, re rejecting the initial, you know, offer from Disney largely because they're not doing COVID testing on the cast members. I mean, um, this is a really fluid situation, Len, you know, and it just, you know, there's a lot of folks who were, you know, it's like, are, are they really going to make the July 11th opening given this situation? I think they will open on July 11th. Worst case is, is the, uh, the inter live entertainment is, is cut back more than they had originally planned. I think that the, uh, Chris's point though, about Disney trying to figure out what a make mm -hmm. good is for this is one of the reasons why tickets haven't gone on sale yet for the rest of 2020. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. they're they're trying to figure out like will we have park hopping or not? We don't know. Two, mm -hmm. with these shortened hours and with these modified experiences, like they, Disney needs to see what prices people are willing to pay for these tickets. Because I, you know, I, I don't think we're going to pay hundred. I don't think you're going to get many people paying one hundred and fifty nine dollars during peak mm -hmm. times for the experience. Yeah. That it, it, just no, right? It's just you know, mm -hmm. not many people are going to do that. So I think Disney's still trying to figure all of that out. Yeah. All right, Jim, uh, I mentioned earlier we got some uh, wedding stories from listeners, and they are fantastic. I'm going to give a, a sample of them on this show, and then we'll, we'll keep doing them as long as they're being sent in. Here we go. This one's from Keith. Keith writes, I've always loved the show, and I'm responding to your call for stories about experiences with Disney weddings. I didn't get married there myself, but my daughter was the flower girl at my college roommate's wedding on 11-11-11 at Epcot. And Sid and Adeline got married in the France Pavilion for an 8 a.m. wedding. The celebrant stood in front at the fountain, so the, you know, the fountain in, in the France Pavilion, and the, attending, the attendees were seated to look into the France Pavilion. And Keith writes that it was fun to see the backside of Epcot, the bus that took the wedding party and guests from Animal Kingdom Lodge to the venue. It wasn't the regular Disney transportation system bus. It wasn't even a Magical Express bus or a cruise line bus. It was a higher end bus, almost like a band tour. And then after the wedding was over, we all got to see Impressions to France and a private showing. Uh, and then after some wedding photos, what a lovely early lunch at Monsieur Paul. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? It does. It does. Keith also writes that uh, he never heard exactly how much it costs to do uh, the wedding, but it was very expensive. It was a small wedding of about 30 to 40 people. And there was an overall spend level that they had to hit for the wedding. So the, for example, the guest reservations and park tickets all figured into that spend number. And the reason why Keith remembers this was that uh, his family were, uh, was staying using DVC points and they had to work with a coordinator to figure out the dollar value for a point <laughs> stay. I would love to know what the dollar value of those points were, Keith. Send me an email. Uh, this kind of reminds me of my poor former father-in-law, Terry Smith, who when we had our wedding at the, uh, the beach club, he agreed to do an open bar and but they you know with the idea that they had to hit a certain spend level and the problem is the hills are basically teetotalers and oh. so when the ceremony was over I saw a very unhappy man standing with the, the the bartender you know basically that's the most expensive beer I've ever had in my life so you know it's like <laughs> every every drink was a double or a triple there we go <laughs> double triple quadruple hey <laughs> 
Also, uh, Jim, Chris writes in uh, who's, and he says, I've been the guest and have witnessed a number of weddings at Universal's Halloween Horror Nights, all of which were officially licensed and planned by Universal for the couples. These usually involve a ceremony in one of the haunted houses in the sound stages by the house's facade entrance. I've seen scare actors galore at the ceremony from Jack the Clown to Frankenstein's monster. Let me tell you, seeing how happy a bride was to be walked down the aisle by Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman has been a personal highlight. The thing that I love about this is the details that Universal throws in. So Chris writes that mm. they usually take, take place in a golden spot between the park closing to day guests and the start of the Halloween Horror Nights event. And after the ceremony, the happy couple are usually escorted by the creeps and ghouls of the event through a scare zone and into another soundstage where the party is held. And often the escorting from the ceremony to the venue becomes like a parade. And they usually have a hearse that has a bunch of flowers spelling out just married and a skeleton filled coffin with inscriptions like our single life. Once at the party, they sometimes cut a cake that oozes blood or they carve a pumpkin. Uh, You can imagine the parties often look like a huge monster mash with dry ice galore and spooky music. That is fantastic. Yeah. Wow. And Chris writes, uh, if you read this out, uh, Aaron and I would love a plug of our show, The Halloween Half Half Hour. It's the show that I helped create because I put the two of them in touch. Uh, there you go, Chris. Oh. There's your plug. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So I never thought of that, that you could get married no. at, at a Halloween horror night and have a cake that oozes blood. God, I hope it's strawberry oh. blood. That would be delicious. <laughs> Red velvet? I, nah, yeah. All right. Never mind. So. That's fantastic. I didn't even think of that. Okay. And mm-hmm. then the last one is from a, uh, a reader who, who doesn't give his name till the end and you'll understand why he says, uh, I just finished this week's Disney dish and had a funny wedding story to share about 10 years ago. My family and my wife's side of the family were planning a trip to Disney. We were staying at Riverside and I was in charge of planning for the big group of 14 and getting fast passes, Disney reserva- uh, dinner reservations and was adding special events like a Mickey's not so scary Halloween party. During one of my calls to Disney, I was curious to find out what kind of special magic Disney could throw our way to celebrate our 10-year wedding anniversary. I'd heard about the carriage rides and was curious what they might suggest. So here's the conversation that our listener had with Disney. So Disney says on the phone, is there anything else I can help you with? And our listener said, it's coming up on my 10-year anniversary. Do you do annulments? (laughs) And he says, there was a really long pause, you know, crickets. And then he says, oh, sorry, I meant for your anniversary. What do you call that when you renew your, that's it. Do you do anything for wedding, wedding renewals? <laughs> and he writes in that that was the <laughs> longest, most awkward silence I have ever experienced. <laughs> but they had both had a good laugh. He's still happily married today. And he's never shared the story with his wife. And he never will. Uh, and then he signed it, uh, Kevin and Nina, I mean, Phil from Baltimore. So Phil from Baltimore. <laughs> Thank you for that <laughs> Wow. Wow. I mean, renewals. Yes. Oh, my God. I kept kept the receipt. (laughs) It's like, can I return this? You know, (laughs) thank you, Phil, from Baltimore. All right, Jim, we're going to take a quick uh, break. Before we do, a couple of reminders. One, we do a virtual movie night every Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, where the movie is related to a Disney or Universal theme park ride. Log on to the chat feature at touringplates.com or on Twitter, use the hashtag Leonard Movie Night. And we'll make goofy comments about the movie as it plays. I believe this week's movie is National Treasure. And be sure to follow uh, Turing Plants on Twitter to vote for each week's film. All right, Jim, when we come back, you're going to tell us about the behind-the-scenes work that's been happening to change Splash Mountain into Princess and the Frog. We'll be right back. So last week, Disney announced that there's going to be a re-theming of Splash Mountain in Disneyland 
in a Walt Disney World to a Princess and the Frog theme. And in that press release, they had announced that they've been working on it for, quote, over a year. Yeah. Really, this is kind of a case of hiding in plain sight. In fact, if we'd all been really paying attention, we would have realized that Disney had already sort of started this retheming, redoing of, of problematic attractions back in 2017, uh, June. That That's when they announced they were going to redo the auction scene at both the Disneyland Park and the Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom version of Pirates. At that time, Susie Brown, who's a spokesman for the Disneyland Resort, said, we believe the time is right to turn the page on a new story in the scene, consistent with the humorous, adventurous spirit of the, the attraction. And then a year later, June 2018, we get red. And the auction scene has changed to now a thing where the pirates are bartering with the villagers for their freedom. By the way, did, did you see the announcement uh, last week of the Margaret Robbie Pirates of the Caribbean project? I was going to say, uh, yeah, Margaret Robbie was, uh, is going to be red in the movie, right? And that's great because Margaret Robbie, I think, is, is excellent for, uh, for the redhead. Oh, absolutely. And in theory, this solves Disney's Johnny Depp problem because the backstory for Red is that she decided to become a pirate because she had this memorable encounter with Jack Sparrow. So in theory, if they go this route with the pirate franchise, it allows them to bring in Mr. Depp for a relatively short thing in the film because Johnny's gotten kind of problematic lately. And Margot Robbie is, is young. She's, uh, she's well-established. That's it. Exactly. We, I mean, yeah, we, uh, she, you know, we, she got, she had at least 10 or 20 years, right? <laughs> well, there you go. All right. Yes. The, the franchise can proceed into the, the future. And in fact, do you remember the dip, you know, when things were going well and the, you know, that he talked about how he, he'd love to do Jack Sparrow till, you know, they have to wheel him in a wheelchair. So maybe Margaret can go the same route. Exactly. Anyway, on the heels of the auction scene being changed out and the fact that there was not the, the uproar that Disney was kind of anticipating, they've put together a punch list of other attractions that do have issues that they're looking to address on the heels of the success of the change of the auction scene. So Country Bear, they're looking at pulling out the Mama Don't Whoop Little Buford scene. And Peter Pan, I, you know, it's no surprise to anyone, given the, the tiger lily and the, the way the Indian village is depicted in this interaction, that they're looking to address that. Yeah. They're also looking at the Indian encampment that you see from the Mark Twain steamboat. Oh, really? Because that's, been there, forever. Yeah, that's but been there forever. The interesting thing is what they've decided to do is really lean into the research, really make that as authentic as possible. Oh. And then, of course, Hall of Presidents. There's just a concern that even with the most recent update, which, by the way, I, I, I thought they did a, a nice job with the the storytelling portion of the attraction. But there's a notion that they can continue to step away from the ingrained white patrician take on American history. And that also carries over to American Adventure. But the big project, the one that obviously needed the most attention, was Splash Mountain. Disney's been... You know, eyeballing this for a number of years now, and it just then, you know, they came up with the notion of we could go Princess and the Frog with this, but this would be hugely expensive and this would take years. So let's make that the last thing we do out of all of these these change-ups. So did they ever consider any other options other than Princess and the Frog? It's a hugely popular attraction. 
but it's also it's kind of problematic because it's just the industrial complex side of this thing, Len. I mean, you know, for example, the Disneyland version of the attraction. There's four main pumps. They they put twenty thousand gallons of water and per minute are rolling through that thing, and you know they have to maintain the four hundred and seventy five gallon reserve at the bottom of the building. Crazy. So. Yeah, I mean, it just, you know, from a physical plant side of this thing, it's just the whole notion of we can't touch that. What theme can we work around that without trying not to spend money on something you don't need to spend money on? And they tried a number of different things, but obviously, you know, Princess of the Frog is right there. And on the heels of the success of Frozen Ever After at Epcot with its five-hour-long lines, it's like we just proven that a princess – themed flume ride can be hugely popular. Let's explore that idea. But it's lessons learned with Frozen Ever After that were supposedly applied to the development of uh, Princess and the Frog. Oh, like, and, like what? Well, uh, first and foremost, uh, you're not going to see Tiana as a frog in this attraction. I mean, mind you, as you come through the queue, they're going to tell you the entire story of the princess and the frog. But by the time you get on the log, you are at the moment in the storyline where uh, Naveen and Tiana have kissed as frogs and that breaks the curse and they're, they're humans now. If you think about the very first time you see Elsa in Frozen Ever After, it's in the back, back over the falls room with for the trolls. Right. She's in her uh, ice castle, right? That's it, exactly. But also, because of the setup that you have to, your your log has to physically shift to the other track, it's the longest possible time you can spend with that character. So, you you, you know, you can get a oh, okay, good okay. chunk of let it go in that space. So, what they've decided to do with Tiana, supposedly, is that you get to see her, you come down, you know, that first drop into the old how-do-you-do scene, and here's Tiana and Naveen, and they've just you know transformed, and they're so happy, and they're inviting all of their forest friends. And if you remember from that scene in the movie, they were like deer, they were rabbits, you know, so that they were allowed to recycle a few figures, Len. But this is also the space where you have the most time with Tiana. But the setup for the ride is that, you know, ooh, let's go celebrate by going to Mardi Gras. And Louis the alligator gets so excited by this, he turns to Tiana and accidentally knocks his trumpet case into the water, which then gets caught by the current. You know, when you're in your log, you can actually see it floating next to you. And now it's Louis frantically chasing his trumpet case through the attraction. <laughs> okay. All right. With a flume, you only have three modes. You have fast, as you're going downhill, you have slow, and then you, you have basically show. You have show scenes where you deliberately bend the track a little bit so it will slow down a little bit so you can do show moments. But Tiana, you're going to see her at the beginning, and you're going to see her at the end where basically she and Naveen are going to be on the Zippity Lady riverboat, and they're sailing back to New Orleans. But the rest of the attraction basically is Lewis. And, and again, it's a deliberate choice because Lewis is a big fat alligator, so you can see him from a distance. And on this flume ride, Len, it travels. Uh, the Disneyland version is uh, four, feet, four feet per second. The Disney World version is three feet per second. You can't do dialogue. So it's all yeah. got to be these quick gags that can be set up from a distance and that sort of thing. And, and the weird part of it is, is they're going to try to, the gags or individual moments that you love from Splash Mountain 
are going to be redone, just a couple, sort of sort of nods and tributes to the early attraction. Like, for example, that moment where Br'er Bear has the beehive at his nose and is sort of flailing about. If you remember the Princess and the Frog movie, Lewis winds up in a pricker bush at one point and is covered with prickers, and they're just basically going to put him in the Br'er Bear position. Same thing flailing about, only he's covered with prickers now. Okay. Likewise, the uh, moment in Splash Mountain where it's all black light, that's where you're going to be with all of Ray's uh, relatives, the, the, the fireflies. But the part I think people are going to be most excited about is what they do. You know, Remember when you begin to climb up Chickapin Hill and you see the vultures and all that? Yep. The story may change between now and when this attraction opens, but right now what happens is at that point you've entered a part of the the dangerous part of the swamp, the dark part, part of the swamp. And as you're you're moving to the bottom of Chickapen Hill, you're now surrounded by Dr. Facilier's friends from the other side. You know, so there's this amazing projection mapping of big scary shadows. Oh. And as you start to chug up the Chickapen Hill, you're going to be, if you remember the, the song, I've got friends on the other side, there was, toward the end, there was a bump, 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 bump. And there were all these voodoo masks that were chanting, are you ready? And that's what oh, you're going to Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, that, that's, but you know, the thing is, and you reach the very top of the attraction, but in, in place of the shadow of Br'er Fox and, and Br'er Rabbit tied up on the stake, mm-hmm. you're now going to see the shadow of the shadow man. You know, this is oh. the one time you actually get to see Dr. Facilier in the attraction, but there at the top is Mama Odie. And, and remember, <laughs> you've seen the concept art. The Chickapin Hill is now the tree with Mama Odie's boat in the top of it. And Mama Odie is like, I've got no time for this nonsense. She takes her magic wand, which is that tree stump, and waves it at uh, Dr. Facilier and dissipates the shadow. But at the same time, that blast of magic is what knocks you down the hill. And as you get to the bottom of the hill, you're now surrounded by all of those spoonbill cranes that sang Dig a Little Deeper with Mama Odie. And then you sail into the final scene where Lewis has been reunited with this trumpet and this sort of this armada of little boats that are headed to New Orleans. In fact, one one wall of the attraction supposedly is a, a you know, in much the same way as the castle, you see the castle of Arendelle, you see the waterfront in New Orleans, you actually see the abandoned factory that eventually is going to become Tiana's place. Uh, but there's fireworks going off, and and then the final gag is you make the turn at the moment where, remember, there was the alligator pulling on Br'er Fox's tail. We're back to Lewis, and Lewis is frantic because he's lost his trumpet again. And it's like, <laughs> have you seen it? It's literally placed in the top of his head. He somehow can't see that he's left it on the top of his head. Oh, that's fantastic. This is the basic storyline as of today. I'm sure you've seen the woman who's in charge of the attraction, Charita Carter. And yes, it's great that she's an African-American woman in charge of this project. But to be honest, what's really great that it's Charita is she's just come off of doing the redo of the great movie ride to Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Oh, fantastic redo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is somebody who's very familiar with trying to do complex redos of popular attractions. So she's the right person for the right time at this job. The one thing people need to be aware that, you know, it's not like the parks are going to open up and this attraction is going to be there day one. What I've been hearing 
is we'll be lucky to see this ride up and running by 2024, more likely 2025. Really that long? But that interestingly enough to, to sort of tie back to the great movie ride, they would like to do out ahead of the official closing of Splash to do a number of fan events or that sort of thing. Give people the opportunity to say goodbye to the ride. Also, yeah. give them a chance to buy limited edition merch because just mm-hmm. last week when this was announced, the parks merch site online and likewise Shop Disney went clean on Splash Mountain merchandise. People just went nuts and immediately bought up everything they could get their hands on. Wow. When do you think it'll close, Jim? Especially with the 50th anniversary coming, they would like to keep it in place through 2021 with eyeballing doing the close in 2022. But again, to leave sufficient time to do a couple of fan events, that sort of thing. But this is going to be a a long redo, Len. Mickey's was closed for, what, two years at least, or or the great movie ride, uh, before finally reopened this spring. And we should anticipate, especially with the amount of concrete that was used to build the sets, you know, especially for the Disneyland version, uh, this is going to be a while. That's the story I was told just this past weekend when I I was making some, some calls about it. That's why when you look at the concept art, that the one piece of concept art they have out there, you don't see Tiana and Naveen. You see Tiana and Lewis because Lewis is basically driving the story of this attraction. With a closure that long, it's going to be a much more extensive refurbishment than I, I had originally thought. Like, I mean, my my worst case scenario was they they take out some characters from mm-hmm. Splash Mountain. They insert, you know, they do the bare minimum to insert, you know, Tiana into it. But this sounds like they're they're rethinking everything but the ride system, which sounds great. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're going to try to recycle some of the Splash well, Mountain sure. characters. I mean, but I, yeah, I mean, that, that's natural. But at the same time, understand that, you know, if you're a fan of the Disneyland version of this attraction, it has uh, 102 characters in it. Uh, whereas the Disneyland, uh, Disney World version has just 63. And I'm told that basically they're going to be building two sets of characters at the exact same time. Whatever goes into the Disney World version will basically drive what what goes into the Disneyland version. So uh, a lot of the design choices for Florida will drive how Florida is done, or so I mean, how California is done. I, I can't wait to see Br'er, Hopping Br'er Rabbit at uh, Cast Member <laughs> Connection. I think $10. You want a kid? $10. Oh, when you think about what they spent to do that character back in the day. I know. It was Ugh. like a million-dollar animatronic. That's right. Yeah, it's it fine. Was, it, it, was. it served yep. its purpose, Jim. I mean, it's uh, been a great mm. ride for three decades, right? Four decades. So they got their money's worth. That they did. I'm very excited to see it, to see this uh, this ride open up. So uh, so late 2021 or early 2022 to close, and then going mm-hmm. through 2024 to 25. All right. And there's always those those timelines can move. So, but that's what we're hearing. About, I, right? I, absolutely. Given this is a water based attraction, you know, it's a, the schedule is very fluid right now. So. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Uh, All right, Jim, thanks for the update on that. Folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's regular show, we'll be back from preview days at the Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom, and we'll tell you all about it. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's preparing a 300-foot 3D sidewalk reproduction of Claude Monet's Water Lily series for the Reno Chalk Art and Music Festival, July 9th to the 11th, 2021, at the Atlantis Casino Resort Spa in beautiful downtown Reno, Nevada. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. 
For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.